Everybody ready to get sliced and diced by the word? <laughs> That's what it's for. Cut between soul and spirit. Undo the wrongful understandings that we have stepped into in the past. Put us in a path of righteousness for his name's sake. Put us in that path of destiny that God has for us. Hallelujah for your word. And before I get carried away and start preaching, there are a couple of things that I need to mention. So I just wanted to mention that not this week, like the one that launched today with Sunday, next week we are launching into presence, power and purpose, living the book of Acts through our life groups. And every member of our church by now will have received a text message from me asking you to update your details. It doesn't matter how long you've been in our church or how well I know your address. <laughs> we need it actually recorded properly so we can manage what the Lord is about to release among us um, in a way that's reasonably orderly. If you've been visiting our church and you're not yet a member and you haven't received one of those text messages and you would like to be part of uh, one of these life groups, um, that's what this is about, expanding the kingdom. And we would love to have you as part of a life group. So I'm setting aside a little bit of time at the end of the service. When the service is finished, if you have not received one of those text messages from me and you, you're kind of considering being part of our church, um, please come and see me. Give me your phone number. I will text you the message before you go home and you'll be able to register and we will place you somewhere. And I want to thank those who I've approached to lead the um, expanded version of our life groups and your willingness to serve and the willingness to serve of those who have approached to host life groups. It's going to be um, a tremendous um, step forward into what God has for us. So, um, and there's, there's one more thing that I want to mention, um, Chris Moore who's been instrumental in opposing some of the crazy liquor laws that we have in our state, brought my attention to um, the fact that before the New South Wales Parliament at the moment, there is a liquor amendment bill that's going to be presented to Parliament. And one of the provisions that it includes in this amendment is a provision for minors, that's people that, you know, under the age of 18, to be in bars and places that serve liquor up until 10 o'clock at night if they're accompanying somebody who is um, an adult. Now, I believe that this is, uh, this is a very unrighteous thing. Now, the idea is that we should start writing to our, our members of parliament. We live in a, in a number of different um, electorates here because we're spread out all the way from Canman, Campbelltown, Blacktown, uh, out the Penrith, all over the place. If you, would, uh, if you would like to be sent the information about this, I've got all this information, I can email it to you and I would um, encourage you to contact your local member and just say, we don't think this is right, what are you doing about it? So uh, email me. If you don't know the email address for the church, just go to the website. If, you, if you've got a good memory, it's admin at openheavenchurch.org.au. Um, or you can approach me for that email address at the end. And tomorrow night is um, intercession, which uh, we should all be excited by. <laughs> you know, some of the key things that happen in our church and the, and the, the directives that the Lord gives us comes... Uh, when we come before him and pray and intercede. So uh, this is part three of my series on Ecclesia. I don't usually preach series, but I feel like I have to lay out step by step by step where the Lord is taking us in this season. 2020 has been uh, one where it's, it's almost the, the, the number of the year mocks us. Because 2020 speaks of perfect vision and so few of us saw what was coming. And yet the Lord says he does nothing without first informing his servants, the prophets. And so there's a call for us all to step more into the things of the Lord so that we hear clearly. And uh, so we went through a whole series on the forerunner and, a deal, and dealing with the Jezebel spirit and how it's infected the church around the world. And now uh, God is taking us into a season where we begin to understand the actual purpose of the church. And instead of saying, church, let's, let's start thinking automatically, ecclesia, because what 
we are part of at the moment uh, doesn't really resemble what Jesus had in mind. And I want to open that up a little bit further this morning in this Ecclesia Part 3, Living Stones. Did you know you're a living stone? You're a living stone. So uh, as I was... uh, as I was waiting on the Lord about this message, he reminded me of a couple of things yesterday and he reminded me of something that I needed to, to, to speak about at the beginning and something at the end. And the thing he wanted me to speak about at the beginning was a recollection I have of the visit to a church that I was part of. This would have been around the year 2000, Calvary Chapel over in George's Hall. Um, and that church normally seated about 600 people. But for this one particular meeting, I think they had something like 800 people in the auditorium plus the overflow upstairs. And the reason the church was so full was that the church was hosting a man called Brother Yun. Have you guys heard of Brother Yun? Has anybody not heard of Brother Yun? Brother Yun was uh, one of the major leaders of the house church movement in China. I guess he probably still is. And he wrote a book called The Heavenly Man. And um, he is famous around the world for this book. And it's, a, it's an account of his life and how God was faithful to him, even under the most severe torture and persecution of the Chinese Communist Party as it sought to eradicate the church in China. Can I tell you that the Communist Party in China has not changed one bit and the church needs to wake up to this? It reminds me of what happened around the world before World War II where everyone thought, oh, if we just give, give, give to this guy who's a tyrant and a murderer, maybe he'll leave us alone. That's not the direction of this message today, but I just felt like I need to say that. This man wrote this profound book called The Heavenly Man, and I don't actually remember much of what he spoke about that night, but I do remember how he started his message because it included this statement. The Western church doesn't need any more buildings. The Western church doesn't need any more buildings. He could say that with authority and confidence because he was living in a country where you couldn't have a building to have church and yet the ecclesia in that nation exploded into revival. And so... uh, I was thinking about this whole principle of ecclesia and and the part that we play in it. And there's so much more to it than just the concept of us gathering in twos and threes with governmental authority to bind and to loose. There's an identity that we have in Christ that goes beyond just the expression ecclesia, which of course was a secular term for governmental authority. Now we know our governmental authority is in the spirit, right? But there is more to our our identity in the spirit than just this governmental authority. Otherwise, we're just going to be running around tearing down strongholds going, oh, wow, isn't this fun? I want to tell you right from the get-go that you're going to need to focus for this message because it goes deep into some stuff. But I want to promise you that there's a payday at the end for you. (laughs) There's a reward for you for digging in with me. So what does God have in mind for his house. What does God have in mind for his house? The prophet Isaiah prophesied God's heart for his house in Isaiah 56, 7. And it says this, Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. We're going to get into the topic of prayer um, over the next coming weeks. I'm just still waiting on the Lord for the order of all this. Then he says, Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. And if you look at the Hebrew word for house, it actually uh, is the word bayit, which means house, dwelling, or habitation. Now, long after Isaiah, after Israel and Judah had blown it and blown it and blown it and blown it, and God was saying, judgment is coming, he raised up this prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah, in chapter 7, verse 11, says this, Has this house, which is called by my name, 
Become a den of thieves in your eyes. Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. Now, I want you to note that Jeremiah stands in the temple of Jerusalem, in the gates of the temple, and shouts this out to all the people coming to church. How would you like it if your pastor stood out the front and said, Has this house become a den of thieves? <laughs> and again, the same Hebrew word is used, by eat. House, dwelling, habitation. And we know that not long after Jeremiah prophesied this, Babylon invaded Jerusalem and destroyed it. And everything was wiped out except for the remnant. We should be going woohoo over the remnant because we have the call to be the remnant. And so for centuries afterwards... Israel and Judah clung to their only hope, the prophecies about their coming Messiah, who they believed would restore the glory of the nation. But they saw this restoration of glory in the natural. They saw themselves as God's chosen people and that the other nations of the world were rejected in their favor. And so then Jesus turns up. And I want you to remember Isaiah 56, 7, Jeremiah 7, 11, because we're coming to it in the context of Jesus. Jesus comes, supernatural signs and wonders and miracles. The sick are healed, the dead are raised, the lepers are cleansed, demons are cast out. Thousands flock to him. The crowds call out, Hosanna, and worship before him and lay down their palm fronds and say, and welcome the Messiah into Jerusalem, into his capital city, as if he's going to restore the whole nation. So just after he arrives, we're going to Mark chapter 11. Let's see what happens when he comes to the temple. Mark 11 verse 15, so they came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the temple, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Jesus was furious. Jesus was full of righteous fury to see how much what God intended had become perverted. There was this huge, shiny, materially magnificent temple, the outer courts of which could fit comfortably 100,000 people. And all these people are selling things that you can offer in sacrifices. And this big, shiny, magnificent thing that everybody was so proud of that was supposed to be dedicated to worship, prayer, and hosting the manifest presence of God had become a place where a lot of empty religion was practiced and it had a whole lot of commercial activity attached to it. Furthermore, Jesus knew that he, if he was to walk into the Holy of Holies, there would be no Ark of the Covenant there. There would be no Shekinah presence of the Lord hovering over the mercy seat of the ark because the ark was no longer there. He knew there would be no Shekinah presence of God and he knew that the spirit of prophecy would be absent. This is what all the rabbis of the day recognized and knew. These were the things that were missing from the Holy of Holies. He had this magnificent structure and no presence. A whole lot of empty religion and a whole lot of commercial activity. In John chapter 2, when John gives his account of this incident, you get a picture of Jesus that we're not terribly familiar with. Because Jesus comes aside and he actually fashions a whip made out of cords. He's not coming up to the money changer in the temple and saying, excuse me, brother, I don't think you should be doing that here. I want you to leave. Instead, he took out the whip that he had fashioned with his own hands and began to lay about this brother with his whip. 
get out. Jermaine, I'm not prophesying over you, my brother. <laughs> you are very welcome in the house of the Lord, but I need an example so you can see for yourself. Is this the picture of Jesus? You have a whip. <laughs> and so he lays into the moneylenders and he lays into the merchants and he drives them out. And then he says, Mark 11 17, then he taught, saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves? And I never understood until I really looked into the source of that scripture that he was actually combining Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, with Jeremiah 7 11. Isaiah 56, 7 is the prophecy of what God intended. A house of prayer for all nations. Jeremiah 7, 11 is the judgment of God shouted out by Jeremiah in the gate, the entrance of the temple, because not only was there all this commercial activity going on and empty religion, but on the side they were murdering children just down the road and sacrificing them to Baal and still calling Jehovah their God and still walking in an identity as being chosen by God while murdering the unborn or, murdering the, or even worse, murdering the newly born, which I would remind you is passed by law in certain states in the United States of America and also certain states in our nation. So Isaiah 56, 7 is a prophecy of what God intended. Jeremiah 7, 11 is the judgment of God. And Jesus combines them. And he tells them, this is why I'm doing it. Because this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations and you've made it a den of thieves. And then in the midst of all this chaos that his actions have caused, there's people running out, there's sheep running loose, there's gold scattered all over the floor, which I bet you not one person was game to pick up because of the righteous fury of the Messiah standing in their midst. Right in the middle of that, Matthew 21, 14, in Matthew's account, he says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. <laughs> Is this the picture of Jesus that you have? The church needs to get to know this Jesus. The church needs to get to know this Jesus. This Jesus has eyes of righteous fire, but he also has a whip in his hand for those who would pervert the worship of God while still having compassion and grace toward those who desperately need him. God, do we need a reformation or do we not? And so the question must be, what does God want? Because don't forget that Jesus said, this whole thing's coming down. What does God want? What does his house of prayer look like? See, when Jesus says house, the Greek word is oikos. And I'm not going to delve into this too much. But there are 40 references in the New Testament where the temple is talked about and a different Greek word is used. But when Jesus speaks about the house of the Lord, he says oikos. And it's got pretty similar meaning to bait in the Old Testament. It means home, it means household, it means family, and it means the sphere of influence that you have. It doesn't mean a building. 1 Kings 8.27, 2 Chronicles 2.16, Acts 7.48 and Acts 17.24 all tell us that God does not dwell in a temple made by human hands. Old Testament and new. God does not dwell in a temple made with human hands. The reason that we get the manifest presence of God in this place is because we gather here. Wherever two or three... The presence is here. The building doesn't matter. So where does God intend to reside? What does he desire? Where does he dwell? Thank the Lord for the word of God because the word of God tells us. In Haggai 2 verse 9, the prophet Haggai says, 
The desire of nations. Who knows who the desire of nations is? Everybody should have been shouting in unison, Jesus. <laughs> in Haggai 2.9, the prophet Haggai says, The desire of nations will come to his temple and fill it with glory, and the glory of the latter temple shall be greater than the former. And he uses the word bait, house, household, family, not building. The glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. Oh, hang on a minute. What about Solomon's temple? What about when they commissioned the temple and they all blew the shofar and the cloud of glory came into that building? And nobody could get up and preach. That's the former. That's the former glory. Can we see what God wants to do? The desire of nations is Jesus. And we are his temple. <laughs> so if the desire of nations comes to his temple, and he has, are you not born again? The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. The desire of nations has come to his temple. How is his habitation built up? How is it expressed so that the temple which is us, is filled with the glory of God, not just filled but overflowing so much so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters covers the sea only happens one way, through us. In many cases, if you look around at the modern church, you will see that the glory of the building is greater than the level of glory inhabiting those who visit it. I have seen some magnificent churches in my time. I'm not knocking the building. One of my favorite preachers has a church in Texas that the building costs 100 million bucks. Great. I've got nothing against the building so long as the person who built the building, who put it together so that all those people could meet, is going after one thing. The Lord who wants to take up habitation amongst, who wants to manifest his presence among the people that gather. So how does he want to do this thing? How does Jesus want to do it? And remember, we're talking about the context of ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia. You're not building a church. He's building an ecclesia with governmental authority. And the Lord took me to First Peter. He's been taking me around the world in 80 days the last few months. Takes me to all these unusual places in Scripture and then he kind of ties it up in a nice little bow for me and goes, here you go, John, have a look at this. What do you think of this? And then, by the way, John, how does this compare with what you've been doing? I want to tell you that this is the year that the wrecking ball is coming to the church. This is the year the wrecking ball is coming to the church. First Peter is written to Jewish Christians under persecution. They're going through the fire. And his purpose in writing the book is to undergird them and encourage them to see their suffering in the light of eternity. Did you know that the word encourage is not just, oh, have a nice day. Oh, you did a good job of that. Encourage actually means the transfer of courage into your spirit, man. Too often we don't have our gaze fixed on an eternal perspective. And yet that is the perspective that we're called to. I'm not supposed to be worrying about what I'm having for lunch today. 
I'm not supposed to be worrying about whether my jacket is clean this morning before I come to church or whether I've got a jacket to put on. He numbers the rapidly diminishing hairs on my head. I believe when I get my heavenly body, it's going to have a full head of hair like I had when I was 25 or so. <laughs> See, suffering, <laughs> shoot that rabbit, suffering comes along and we just don't know what to do with it or how to respond. Persecution comes, we don't know what to do. Oh! Peter encourages them to live holy lives. You know, without holiness, the church has got nothing to offer. If the church doesn't offer holiness, why shouldn't we just spend our days going to the local club? Peter speaks of the perfect sacrifice of redemption. The blood of Jesus, he speaks about all these things. He speaks of purity born of our obedience, which comes because we choose to believe the promises of God. He speaks of being born of an incorruptible seed. When you were born again, you came into the lineage of Jesus. Jesus, while King of kings and Savior and Redeemer and all the beautiful things, he's also your brother. First Peter is a rich, rich work as it should be given the journey he went down. Siona spoke um, about Peter on Friday night. And we should all be struck by the difference between a group of disciples before the Holy Spirit came and their petty insecurities, jealousies, ambitions and all the other things that they brought into arguing with each other about who is the greatest while Jesus is preparing to carry his cross after he's told them, if you're going to come after me, you need to carry a cross too. Nobody was arguing about who gets to carry the biggest cross or who gets to suffer the most. Everybody was arguing about, I am the greatest. Everyone was doing a pretty good Pretty good uh, imitation of Muhammad Ali. Fold like a butterfly, sting like a bee. <laughs> Shoot that rabbit. <laughs> See, I had to stop myself from diving into all these themes, not the Muhammad Ali one, the others that I've just been speaking about out of First Peter because there's something very specific and foundational to be found in a particular section, a, just a short section of verses in First Peter that is actually matched and expanded on in other sections of Scripture. And as we're going to see, it is foundational to an understanding of ecclesia. And I'm constantly amazed at the harmony of Scripture that there is no disunity between the concept of ecclesia and the house of the Lord. They're actually merged, as we shall see. In 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 6, this is what he says, Therefore, laying aside... By the way, everything that I just said was why the therefore is therefore. The bits that came before. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, all envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Have you tasted that the Lord is gracious? I've got a fresh taste of his grace this morning as we are worshiping. Amen. But here we go. Coming to him as a living stone... Rejected indeed by men. So, so coming to him as to a living stone, Jesus, the living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a spiritual house, a spiritual house, <laughs> a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. This quote from Isaiah 28.16 about Jesus as the chief cornerstone, this is written thousands of years before Christ, at least hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ. And yet it speaks prophetically into something that only was manifested on the earth when Jesus came. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put, be put to shame. The quote from Isaiah 28, 16 is so pivotal to what God wants built that it is quoted three times by Paul in the book of Romans and it's quoted again here. And the importance of the cornerstone is, is this, that we are all living stones being built together into a spiritual house with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. Do I have any master builders here? Anybody here got a building certificate or a building license? Let me explain the concept of the cornerstone. The significance of the cornerstone is that all other stones that make up the building will be set in reference to this one stone, thus determining the position, the position and the integrity of the entire structure. If you get the cornerstone wrong, you get the whole thing wrong. If, our, if everything that we do is not centered around the person of Jesus Christ and that beautiful cross, we're not doing this right. This is why, uh, and this is, I'm deliberately going a little bit off track because the enemy understands that if he can get the cornerstone in what we are assembled for, if he can get that a little bit out of shape, if he can pervert its positioning, if he can compromise what it's made of or what its purpose is, then the whole thing is going to be slightly awry. The whole Western church is slightly awry. And so, for, an exa for example, this is why Freemasons, when they influence Christian denominations, will put a Masonic cornerstone in a new church building. Because with the Masonic symbols, they're actually um, elevating another God into the position of Jesus. They don't want Christ there. They want to usurp his position so that the demonic influence of Freemasonry compromises the positioning and integrity of all the stones that make up the building. And thus the church is crippled and cannot flourish. They do something in the natural to reflect what they want to see happen in the spiritual because Freemasonry is a demonic belief system that cripples whole movements. And so you can take any compromise you like and put it there and compromise the entire structure. If it's not centered around Jesus, it can't be there. It can't be what God builds from. So we see that we're being built into a living spiritual house and we are all living stones within that spiritual house. Spiritual, spiritual Spiritual, spiritual. Get the building out of your heads. <laughs> Get the building out of your heads and understand that it is something that has been built in the spirit. <sighs> this means that the physical location becomes secondary to our spiritual identity together. We already heard for the last couple of weeks about Jesus saying, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. So we don't go to church. We become an ecclesia built out of living stones. Each one of you is a living stone. And when we come together, we are coming together as an ecclesia, which is simultaneously the house of God. How does this happen? What's the process? 
Because I can preach this till the cows come home, but unless we know what has to happen for it to become a reality, what God originally intended for this to become a, a reality, we'll just come up with our own ideas or we'll make the mistake that I've made several times to try and import an idea from somewhere else because God moved over there, so he's going to move here if I do the same thing that they did. Boy, has there been some repentance attached to my heart around that concept. Because we all want to see God move, right? We all want to see God move. And then what happens when, when, uh, uh, a, a, uh, when chaos is unleashed against the church? We have a choice. We can either come to the Lord with repentant hearts, understanding that in this fiery trial is something glorious that God wants built, or we can run and hide and hope that things go back to how they were. But they're not going back there, guys. They're not going back there. God has shifted the goalposts. <laughs> and this particular match that we're playing against the enemy. So we see that he, Jesus, is the cornerstone. We see that we are the living stones joined together as a spiritual house how is it built up? Okay, now we're going from 1 Peter, and we're going to come back to 1 Peter at the end. We're going to go to Ephesians, and we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to talk about verses 19 through 22. Now, therefore, we won't go into the therefores because we would be here till dinner time, which would be okay if we were a Chinese persecuted church, but... Our, uh, our Western mindsets have not yet adjusted us to eight hours of preaching. And I certainly don't have eight hours of preaching in me, but <laughs> except by the grace of God. <laughs> now, therefore, Ephesians 2, 19, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That word household is drawn from oikos. Um, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being what? The chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, the structure, the architecture, etc., being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Um, how can I do this without uh, getting too complicated here? Okay, so you, you, you see that we're all living stones being built together into the house of God, right? And in all cases in Scripture, when Jesus is talking about this or the prophets are talking about it, they were describing something that's house, household, family, relationship, oikos, that whole concept. And in here, he puts the two things together. Because a temple is the place where God manifests his presence, right? In the Old Testament. So here, when he says that we are all fitted together because of the foundations of the apostles and prophets and, the, uh, and Jesus being the chief cornerstone, he says uh, uh, being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, when he uses the word temple there, he doesn't use oikos. He uses the word that denotes sanctuary. The place, the dedicated place where God turns up. See, we're simultaneously being built in the Spirit. And yet God says, as we all come together, He will manifest His presence just like Haggai 2.9. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. Do you see what he's doing here? I don't want to get too complex with all this. In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Built together for a dwelling place. This is a dwelling place of God, not the building, because we're congregated here. In Ephesians 4, the concept of building the house is explored further. And again, now we're going to focus in on what did he mean by the foundations of the apostles and the prophets? What does he mean by that? Okay, so Ephesians 4, 11, 13. These are what are known as the ascension gifts. Prior to these verses, Jesus, uh, Paul talks about how when Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to men, and these are the gifts. 
He, he himself gave some to be, these are the gifts, apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Who here is walking in the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? Okay. If you're like me, you've got a ways to go. If you're like me, you've got quite a ways to go. But God intends to take us there. That's what he's saying here. He's not just saying it. He's prophesying it over you. He gave, he, so he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. That's five-fold ministry, right? So I have some questions. I've had questions that have arisen in my heart right through this year about all sorts of things. And my question would be this. If we reject apostles and prophets in the modern church, why do we still accept pastors, teachers, and evangelists? Have you ever thought of that? If apostles and prophets no longer are in the picture, that means that God actually intends that the church be built only on the gift of pastors, evangelists, and teachers. Is that right? Furthermore, <laughs> and by the way, people that say that the gift of the apostle and prophet are no longer needed because now we have the finished Bible. That's a fairly standard conservative um, evangelical belief. Furthermore, which apostles didn't count because there were 25 in the New Testament in Scripture, not just the original 12? So if there are five ascension gifts and there is not one scripture that says that God said, oh, by the way, now that we've got the end of the book of Revelation and you've got a complete Bible, forget about apostles and forget about prophets. If, they, if these are the five ascension gifts, apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher and evangelist, but two of them ceased after the first generation of leaders, didn't the other three disappear as well? And why do we still include them in the Bible? Fivefold ministry is often expressed as a hand. What good is a hand with no thumb and no forefinger? I invite you to do a little exercise when you get home. You might need some band-aids. Try making lunch. With just those three fingers, you can't do anything. And can I tell you, you can't build a house with three fingers on each hand. This false doctrine that apostles and prophets are not for today are part of a wider doctrine known as cessationism and is preached as sound doctrine by the majority of the church around the world. The church needs to let go of the religious garbage foisted upon us by centuries of error, read and accept the New Testament and understand that the church, the ecclesia, cannot flourish without apostles and prophets. Because scripture says they are foundational to the building of the house. We just read it. Ephesians 2. Without the foundational gifts of the apostle and prophet, without these foundational gifts to the house of God, the ecclesia, the gifts of pastor, evangelist, and teacher 
cannot flourish correctly because the balance is wrong. The church, the wider church has the balance wrong. That's why the church looks inward instead of outward. Let me explain what I mean by that. Apostles are commissioned by God to take territory. They are commissioned by God to take territory in the Spirit. And as they take territory in the Spirit, so it has a, uh, an effect on the natural world within their sphere of influence. And the way that apostles and prophets, the reason why this is so foundational, is because prophets hear from God. And so when you get an apostle that wants to take territory, working in sync with prophets who hear God, then strategy is the result and the taking of territory is the fruit. The great commission that we are being given is about the gospel reaching the ends of the earth and then the end will come. The church has kind of twisted that around into this notion that everybody's got to become an evangelist. And even our understanding of evangelist is perverted because the gift of evangelist is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not do all the work themselves. So the Great Commission is about the gospel reaching the ends of the earth, the glory of the Lord, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea, Haggai 2 verse 9, and then the end will come. Let me go one step further into controversy. Is that okay with you guys? <laughs> Might as well. I've already shot a, shot a few religious cows, so... Let me go one step further into controversy and say that the modern expression of pastoral ministry as the preeminent position of authority in the wider church leads to molly-coddled Christians. The modern expression of pastoral ministry as the preeminent position of authority in the wider church leads to molly-coddled Christians. Because my observation of much of modern pastoral ministry is that it seems to be focused on tending and protecting the flock, which is a very important function within the body of Christ. But God never intended us as sheep to be raised up to be locked up in a pen and hand-fed. He wants mature believers raised up who have been trained and equipped to trust and depend on Jesus to protect us when he sends us out as sheep among wolves. I just thought of an example. I hope this flies for you because I just thought of it and I haven't had a chance to think it through. We have a cat, right? Her name is Sasha. <laughs> and she is a perfect example <laughs> of a pen-fed sheep. I'll tell you why. If you get a kitten, we got Sasha when she was, what, five or six weeks old? Six weeks old, tiny little thing. I hated cats until I met Sasha because I met this helpless little thing. She stole my heart and now she's, she's like the queen of the house, right? But let me tell you what happens with a kitten when you take it into your home. If you make sure that that kitten does not go outside for a month, that kitten will be a house cat. They never go outside. And our cat, Sasha, is also an example of a, uh, a penned-in Christian <laughs> in that... She's kind of nasty, except to me. She can be quite vicious. She can scratch and bite and claw and all sorts of stuff. In fact, when I go to feed her, right, she knows when I'm going to feed her because she knows what time that happens, and she gets fed in the laundry, and so she goes walking in the laundry, turning her head every couple of seconds to make sure that I'm obediently in tow and as she goes along towards her bowl, she'll turn her head to me and hiss. <laughs> this house cat. 
<laughs> now, Julia, I'm glad that uh, you suggested that our pet needs deliverance. We've had a number of apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers and evangelists come through our home and I've invited every single one of them to do deliverance ministry on this cat and none of them has sufficient anointing. <laughs> oh, we're, not, we're not talking about that dog. <laughs> yes, next time I go on a 40-day fast... <laughs> but see if uh, so <laughs> so let's just back it up a bit back it up a bit right so we get this we get this baby kitten and we keep it in the house so it, it, it's completely secure in its environment it takes over the whole thing <laughs> it even manages to intimidate the dog <laughs> but if as a little baby kitten I just left the glass door open at the back of our house and let that thing wander in and out I want to tell you that cat would grow up with a wider perspective of the world and would want to go explore and bring home its kill to leave on the mat right that's what cats do sometimes but see this is what we're supposed to do we're supposed to be like the feral cat that gets out of the house and gets out into the harvest and brings home the trophies, brings in the sheaves of grain. I hope that this analogy will stick with you and that all this week you will ask yourself whether you're a house cat or whether you're a bit feral. Because the church needs to get a bit feral. We need to be a bit wilder than we have been in the past. Let's put aside the analogy of the cat. Let's go back to sheep because sheep is much more scriptural. When we go back to... <laughs> thank you for that encouragement, Renee. <laughs> I think Renee is searching concordances for references to the cat. I don't think there's too many. I know she found one about unicorns, but we're not going there. Matthew 10, 16. <laughs> Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep... In the midst of wolves. Well, isn't that a bit cruel, Jesus? <laughs> Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. See, we're meant to be sent out. But we're not, we're not meant to be sent out only equipped with three of the fivefold. We need vision to see what's out there and what God wants done. We need the prophetic to speak into what we're doing. And we need the pastors, teachers and evangelists to come around that vision and equip the saints for the work of ministry because the work of ministry is out there. It's out there. Let's wrap this up. I'm going to try and land this plane. <sighs> Because we could explore the ramifications of all this for weeks, but I feel like God is just asking me to lay a foundation again for where we're going as a gathering of believers. And I don't know the destination yet. It's kind of, it's pretty good. He's, God's the only one with the compass. And, he's, <laughs> and he just releases us into the next step, the next step, the next step, the next step. Jesus said, I'm going to wrap this up, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Diving in deeper today, we see that God's intention is an ecclesia that is a spiritual house made of living stones with Christ as the chief cornerstone. So that this can be built... God gives us apostles and prophets as foundations to what is being built up. Prophets see the territory to be taken. Apostles lead in governmental authority to take that territory. And these apostles and prophets lead a five-fold ministry team, which includes pastors, teachers and evangelists in equipping all the saints for the work of ministry. Is, this, is everybody okay with this so far? Everybody clear what I'm saying? 
The work of ministry's primary purpose is to take back dominion from the enemy. For this reason, the Son of God was made manifest to destroy the work of the enemy. How are you going to destroy the work of the enemy if you do not take back the dominion that was stolen from us in the Garden of Eden? That work of, uh, the work of ministry's primary purpose is to take back dominion from the enemy and expand the kingdom of God until the return of Christ, of the increase of his government and of his shalom, his police, his peace. There will be no end. That's what's prophesied over us. The glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. So let's finish with what Peter says about all of us saints. Because, you know, he's given us this beautiful analogy of us as living stones as part of a building with the chief cornerstone being Jesus. And then Paul, when we go over to Paul, he says, oh, yeah, well, the foundation for all this is the ministry, the gift of the apostle and the prophet. And so we start to get this picture of what God wants to do. But when, we, when I come back to Peter in the same passage of Scripture, in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he speaks of our identity. He says, but you are a chosen generation. I want you to say this with me. I am chosen. I'm chosen. You're not an accident. <laughs> no matter how crazy the circumstances of your natural birth or conception might be, you are not an accident. You are chosen. A royal priesthood. Say with me, I am a royal priest. <laughs> Don't all go running out and taking confession from people, okay? You are a holy nation. Say, I am part of a holy nation. His own special people. People. Because let me, let me bring something in here. Let me, let, let, let me bring something in here. Your personal identity and your, and your personal destiny is not as important as the identity and destiny of what you are part of. It's not about you. It's about us as an ecclesia of the Lord Jesus Christ operating in governmental authority so that the kingdom is expanded. Where did I get to? His own special people. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is why we need to understand clearly what God is asking of us. He's not as interested in any of our plans for a new church building as he is. It's his plan that we become an ecclesia, a holy temple comprised of a priesthood of kings led by apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers and evangelists. That's the house of God. Holiness and authority. What a combination. Holiness and authority. Mix the concept of a royal priesthood with the concept of the authority of ecclesia, always with the reference point of Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And you have something so potent so powerful that Hades itself cannot withstand us. What have we been doing? <laughs> are we going to play church or are we going to live ecclesia? Let's live ecclesia, amen. <laughs> Worship team, could you come up, please? <laughs> Actually, that's, that's a combination punch, that's apostles and prophets, one, two. <laughs> if you're a boxing fan, you'll understand that a combination punch is much more effective than a single right hook or left hook. Anyway, uh, and what we haven't even touched on yet is what Jesus said when he quoted Isaiah 56, 7, and he quoted Jeremiah 7, 11, when he said, my father's house shall be a house of what? Yes. 
Okay, can you all say it together? Prayer. Now I hear people saying prayer out loud that never pray out loud in our prayer meetings. Oh. <laughs> But we're, gonna, we're not going there today. It's 12 o'clock. <laughs> we're not in China in a cave listening to an eight-hour sermon. <laughs> Let me just say that central to all of this is prayer, which is a much, much, much bigger concept than... Uh, Jesus, please bless my day today. And we're going to address that in coming weeks. Um, and we just, actually, we're going to discover as we work through presence, power, and purpose, living the book of Acts, we're going to discover just how central prayer and fasting and intercession are to the life of a functional ecclesia. Let me just finish with this one thing. We've talked about We've talked a whole lot about identity in our church, right? We've talked, I've talked about identity till the cows come home because I'll tell you what, the enemy has stolen our identity. And when we come to Jesus, there's all these things that Jesus accomplished for us at the cross that so many of us never fully step into because we live partially out of our old identity and partially out of our new and sometimes we look back to the old just like the jewish people did in in the wilderness and go i wish i was back in egypt wow wasn't that fun whereas jesus has paid a perfect price for us to walk fully in our new identity but walking in that identity is only available to each one of us to the extent that the cross has done its work in our lives. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you that we are born again not of corruptible things like silver and gold but of the precious blood of the Lamb of God that Lamb without blemish or defect who has paid the ultimate price that we might walk in freedom that we might walk in an identity that looks just like Jesus can we all stand this morning I don't know how deep the waves are in your ocean. But I do know this, that in this season, Jesus is out there and he's standing on the waves. And he's saying to each one of us, what are you doing still in the boat? What are you doing still in the boat? Have I not said, if you keep your eyes on me, you will not sink. <laughs> and so, Lord... We offer you this transaction today. We offer up our feeble way of doing things, knowing that you come and enrich us, that you enlarge the place of our dwelling. But now, Lord, you're asking that the stakes be driven deep into the ground. Lord, may we all have soil in our hearts softened by our tears so that those stakes can go deep even as the tent is enlarged. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you're bringing us into a revelation of what you desire of us and for us. And I pray, Lord, that we would step into it 
every single day we would choose to step into what you have for us in the mighty name of Jesus. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together, church. If there's something you want to bring to the Lord, something or you need the Holy Spirit to touch an area of your life that you know is still part of your whole identity, if you just simply want to say, God, I submit my life to you in whatever way you want to use me, I just welcome you to come out the front right now and just receive from the Lord as we worship together.